Ah, so first of all, I wanted to ask you, how do I pronounce your name? Yeah, it's Evine Chikalsen. Evine, but... uh, okay, with the stress on the on the second syllable. Okay, I wasn't sure. Um, yes, yeah, yeah. so thank you for coming on, Evine. Uh, I'm Natasha from Diversity and Blockchain. Um, this is our Chain Chat series where we ask each guest to leave a question for the next guest um, and have a few other questions in between. So the one that our last guest, Peter, left for you is this one. What inspired you recently, whether it be a book, a film or something from work? What was this energy booster? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on. This is a fantastic podcast that I've been actually tuning into as of recently. Um, this is a great question. I think that I'm going to veer off a little bit into actually a slogan um, that I find super inspiring. Um, there is a popular Kurdish slogan called Jin Jian Azadi, which means women, life, freedom. You've probably heard of it. It gained a ton of global recognition after the death of um, Gina Mahsa Amini. And there was this really massive women-led protest that then followed in Iran. So of, of course, I'm sure you've heard of it. Um, but without getting into too much details regarding that movement and veering completely off track, uh, this slogan has always really been a source of inspiration to me as a Kurdish woman, uh, because it represents really this tapestry of experiences of Kurdish women over generations who have been met with you know, political activism and upheaval under Saddam Hussein, who have joined the armed resistance against ISIS in northern Syria, and who continue to be met with a lot of these different severe societal marginalities and injustices in host countries whose political systems have been historically designed to suppress Kurdish lives. Now, unfortunately, we see a lot of this in a number of different pockets of the world from um women in Mexico, to the olders in China, to Black lives in the United States. Um, and for me, this slogan is a reminder of where I come from, uh, the strength, resilience, and bravery of my Kurdish ancestors, and that in order to make a real impact in the work that I do, in the actions that I take, and in the words that I speak, it really is my duty to create space for people in communities who are being left behind for reasons having absolutely nothing to do with the value they actually add to our human history, culture, and values. And that to me is what my mission is for the work that I'm doing at the Blockchain Law for Social Good Center. And I'm so excited that I have a team that actually shares in that vision as well. That is amazing. I totally did not expect that answer. I have goosebumps. It's beautiful. Um, actually, I was uh, talking recently to, to somebody who recommended a uh, I mean, it's, it's loosely related, but you probably have heard of it as well. Uh, it's a Google Chrome extension called a Snowflake. I have, yes. Yeah. So she was explaining about because of all of the censorship in, in Iran and things like that, that you can add this Snowflake extension. This is for the other listeners, as they, you have just said that you know you know about it, but you can have this Chrome extension and kind of bridge your excess internet to, to people where the internet access is censored and you know, they can, I think the internet's an, an important an important vehicle in getting people's messages across. So, uh, yeah, I obviously had that installed as soon as I heard about it and just reminded me with, with that really lovely story of uh, what has inspired you recently. So thank you for that. Um, okay, so 
Yeah, tell me about um, what it is you do at the Blockchain Law for Social Good Center. Yeah, so um, I recently joined, um, gosh, I think it was back in March at this point. Yeah, so I recently joined as their new director of the Blockchain Law for Social Good Center, which is an academic nonprofit. We're funded by the Filecoin Foundation for the Decentralized Web. And um, this center really is the first of its kind in the United States. That's what makes it super unique. And our mission is to create the training grounds that equip law students, lawyers, uh, entrepreneurs, as well as policymakers and government officials at the federal, state, and local level on the socially beneficial use cases of blockchain law and technology. Now, as you know, that there's a lot of sensationalism, misinformation, disinformation that abounds what is, is and is not possible when it comes to emerging technologies. So our role at the center is to really provide that critical education that is inclusive, balanced and unbiased so that we can provide really the the building blocks that will create a productive future for the next generation to come. That's amazing. Yeah. And it's definitely one thing that is missing is this kind of like systematic approach to to learning. And on top of that, um, as you were saying, like uh, the regulatory issues and things like that are, you know, at the at the forefront of change making in this industry at the minute um you were at consensus right you uh might be able to share some takeaways from from that regarding those aspects oh yes absolutely so it was my second consensus and it absolutely did not disappoint michael casey who is the chief content officer at coindesk um, and his team at Coindesk just really did a sensational job. You just go and you walk around the convention center, you're just like, wow, it's like a mammoth of an event. And he really pulled it off and it was amazing. Um, I was particularly excited to speak on a panel at Consensus that was entitled Grassroots Crypto and Social Impact, which of course is very um, uh, similar to some of the work that we do at the center. And it was moderated by my dear friend, uh, Trisha Wong who is the co-founder and executive director of the Crypto Research and Design Lab. If you haven't heard of it, would definitely um, recommend looking into the work that they're doing. Um, but for this panel, we discussed the different socially beneficial use cases for blockchain and had an opportunity to hear from founders and leaders from companies like eToro, uh, Planet Watch, we heard from Masa, we heard from this new project that I find really interesting called Future Green, and just several more. Um, in terms of my main takeaways for the event itself, uh, it was particularly striking to me uh, the dichotomy between the existential questions related to mortality, for lack of a better word, of the industry based off of the lack of regulatory clarity that of course we see for digital assets right now in the United States with the level of optimism people still shared about the technology that I found quite striking. And you just kind of see that in terms of like the um, optimism on some of the panels, the different booths where people were doing uh, presentations and whatnot based on you know their respective projects and what they see as particularly productive for the few years to come in that respect. And um, another thing that I found interesting and not too, too shocking was the topic, of course, of regulation. 
that was something that was very much discussed across a lot of the different panels at consensus. And what I found interesting the most was learning about how non-US regulators are thinking about crypto while the US remains in somewhat of a standstill, both in Congress and among regulators, right? So mm -hmm. in that respect, it will be interesting to see how the regulatory scheme in the US evolves and whether progress here will have any impact or clout on already quite advanced regulatory architectures that are being built elsewhere across the world. And that was very much evident um, at this event. So it'll be cool to kind of see that envelop over the next few months. Yeah, good. Like you say, with the um, like you say, with the dichotomy of a lot of the people that have been in this industry for even a short period of time and see especially the social impact, not necessarily just the the crypto side of things, but some of the other use cases, and we're all super maybe blindly optimistic about it. Um, you know, we we don't want all of the work that we've been doing to go to waste. So yeah, there definitely needs to be some kind of regulatory decision making done sooner rather than later, I guess. But uh, yeah. we'll see. We'll see where where and when and how that uh, that shows up. Um, so. How did you start off in blockchain? Because have you been in have you been here a while? What got you into the whole Web3 space? Yeah, so I actually started off in blockchain at the World Economic Forum. I was at the WEF, um, or as we say, the forum um, the past three years. And I started out actually in data policy. I built out their digital justice work. Um, we did a lot of work around restorative justice and whatnot. And then I moved into this new project, which is now called the Crypto Impact and Sustainability Accelerator. And I got to work with the now CEO of the Crypto Innovation, Crypto uh, um, Innovation Council, um, where uh, Sheila Warren is the CEO. She was working at the World Economic Forum where she founded blockchain and she was the deputy uh, director of the WEF and whatnot. And she was, she pretty much asked me, she was like, I'm doing this crypto project and it's gonna be really cool. And it would be really great to have you come on board and work with me on it. And of course I said, yes. And that just kind of started this whole journey towards learning about blockchain, building out all of the things that people found the most interesting and of priority in the space. And through that process, I got to meet some sensational people that now I still work with in my work at the center. And um, what I have really sort of picked up on um, in terms of my personal interests um, about blockchain as a concept and um, as a technology is really its ability to challenge, right? Challenge antiquated systems thinking around how we solve real world problems. And that was really the anchor of how we navigated this project and really why we were able to, um, to uh, share a lot of the scholarship that we did, whether it be across the regenerative finance sector, whether it be around DAOs, um, ethnographic research around um, socially beneficial use cases. We touched upon a lot of different um, nodes of interest from our um, stakeholder partners. And that then led to my work at the center where we're sort of taking a lot of that scholarship and research that we did and pushing that into service. So what does application look like? 
Where do people go if they need to um, see what use cases actually work? What does responsibility look like? What does good look like? And mm -hmm. it's really great to be able to kind of have that um, have that background already and bring that to the work that we're doing at the center, which is just really interesting to see how that that is now getting hooked into with like the students that we have and the regulators that we're speaking to and a lot of the um, community colleges as well, where educators are now just getting really interested in what's possible with this technology for their students. That's amazing. So are uh, you part of that? So I understand that you're kind of collecting data on, on what's going on and, and how it's working. Yes. Okay, cool. But have you always been in in finance or or in tech or where did you start? No, um, I actually, my background is in foreign policy. Um, I did a lot of work. I, I mean, I got my uh, master's degree in public diplomacy. I was in the pipeline to be a foreign service officer. I was at that time also working at Homeland Security Investigations. So that was very much my world for about like three or four years. And then um, it reached a point where, you know, we had an a administration change in the U.S. As you know, from the Obama to the Trump administration, I got to be you know, part of seeing that whole culture and systemics change um, in the work that I was doing. And I felt that at that time, I didn't really get to um, do really the work that I had set out wanting to do, which was really working with different people and communities across the world that are often uh, oppressed by, you know, elements of marginality and systemic injustices. That was something I was researching a lot at school at that time. Um, that was the reason why I wanted to be a foreign service officer so I can like be able to go in field and be a part of, you know, and have my life really devoted to that type of work. Um, but unfortunately, it didn't really go in that direction. So I was kind of trying to find a way to really refocus my mission and my energy on that. And so I was just looking at different opportunities out there. I came across data policy at the World Economic Forum. I was very familiar with the organization. Didn't wasn't very familiar with data policy, but I thought it was a really great challenge and opportunity to learn and hopefully bridge that nexus with my mission. And I'm glad I made that jump because I wouldn't be here talking to you. I wouldn't be working with um, the center and I wouldn't be able to have had met a lot of these people and communities that I've always been wanting to really learn from and collaborate with in the work and the mission that I drive. Oh, that's a really amazing answer again. Um, but yeah, so obviously, I think a lot of us are in this in this kind of field as well, we're of a similar, a similar elk. We have a similar line of thinking of this whole community aspect, like the the decentralized thinking, not having you know one governing necessarily one governing. Um, body um, in many areas not just politically speaking um but yeah i think a lot of us are very pro diversity myself obviously working in uh, diversity in blockchain um yeah. what ways do you think uh maybe these organizations that you you've spoken of or or any organization really can can propel true diversity so I'm sorry, 
can you help reframe the question? You're asking what organizations I've come across that are pushing for diversity? Was that the question? Yeah, okay. So for example, maybe with like the the World Economic Forum um, or blockchain law for social good sensor, what ways are they ensuring that there is diversity? Or mm -hmm. you can take it a little bit more broadly and and you know give some ideas of how any tech companies can ensure diversity across their right. organization. Okay, yeah, totally. So, um, I mean, okay, so stepping back a little bit, I mean, the whole point of Web3, right, is to be this, you know, decentralized system that enables diversity of community, but also of thought, of leadership, and of creativity in order to enable this prosperous future where everyone gets a slice of the pie, right? Now, if Web3 wants to continue to take the steps towards realizing this mission and staying true to the foundations upon which it was designed, then creators, founders, and leaders in the space really, I think, need to do better in terms mm -hmm. of spotlighting people and projects that are actually driving impact with diversity, not as like, you know, a diversity day on the calendar, but as the main part of the equation. And in terms of to your earlier question, what are the organizations that are actually, you know, driving off of that sort of uh, philosophy, I, I definitely think that the blockchain law for social good center is really driving that philosophy forward when we're having our strategy sessions and building out our education program, we're constantly thinking of ways of, you know, okay, this community college wants to work with us, but what about this community college in this underserved area that no one actually knows about? Like, how could we actually have an impact there? How many students um, actually feel as though people see them, that the worlds that they're trying to grow into and have a social impact in feel like they're actually being seen? These are the questions that we're constantly asking ourselves as a team because we're thinking, okay, at the end of the day, we're, uh, you know, a brand and we want to be able to build out our brand and have people know us and the work that we're doing. But a bigger priority for us is having diversity be a part of our everyday strategy to bring in people, groups and um, new voices that feel as though they don't have a seat at the table and that feel that you know, everyone's talking about how they want to have an impact on their lives, but aren't actually giving them the opportunity to be part of the conversation. And I think that's a really big deal when it comes to um, having these big pronouncements around diversity. And unfortunately, something that we see a lot in tech, in, you know, the tech space is that it's usually just sort of like a Twitter campaign or a day in the calendar where you're saying, look at all this diversity we have, but there isn't enough work being done where you're actually looking at the research that the organization is doing, looking at the team that they're building and looking at the people that they're actually collaborating with that actually all attest to the diversity that they've been pushing forward since day one. And that's something that at least my team is really conscious about doing because we don't really want to be part of that, you know, the diversity hype cycle that unfortunately mm -hmm. gets propounded a lot in these spaces. Yeah, like rather than the checklist to have like diversity as a as a culture cultural driver almost behind behind organizations. Okay. Yeah. I see what you're saying. So at the help me visualize how the blockchain law for social good center works. You offer courses. Can anybody sign up? They go through your website. 
is it an online course is it in-person classes in a certain location help me help me visualize the the organization absolutely so um for one the center doesn't offer uh courses or certification programs at least not yet there are um two classes that um, Professor Michelle Neitz, who's actually the founder and academic director of the Blockchain Law for Social Goods Center, she teaches two courses on um, different aspects of blockchain. There's a huge waiting list of students from the um, University of San Francisco School of Law, where we're based, that are part of um, those courses, and we bring them into the conversation in relation to our work. However, in terms of um, some of the other education that we do that is more external facing, um, we do have government trainings that we host for different government offices um, locally across the state of California. There have been some federal offices as well that have gotten in contact with us. This is actually a channel of our work that is gaining a lot of popularity. And of course, rightly so, right? It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's like the thing on everyone's mind. And it's really interesting to be part of those trainings and actually hear some of the questions that regulators and policy enforcers are asking. And just to kind of see, wow, like not only do they have these very, you know, general questions, but there is so much need for foundational education in this space. And we really are well positioned to um, provide that for, you know, this stakeholder group that is really going to have such a huge impact on where we see the regulatory architecture build in the next few years, right? So um, government trainings is something that we offer. We're also looking to build out our community college training. So working with educators at community colleges and underserved areas in the United States, looking primarily at California first, right? And to be able to actually see, okay, um, you know, what are some of the courses or economic lean or STEM courses that these community colleges offer? And how can we actually train educators at that community college in blockchain so that they can then um, use that to educate perhaps their student body? Uh, we're also um, working with um, blockchain entrepreneurs as well. So, I mean, all of that is to say, because there's a lot of nodes to this program, all of this is to say that we're providing a lot of trainings to 200, 500 plus audiences from these different stakeholder groups. And in that process, we're thinking of ways of where we can really build a blockchain informed um, network. And that network can ultimately create this ripple effect where they're also educating their own network. So we hope that that will be helpful in terms of um, really tackling the uh, issue around narrative that is propounded around in this space, about this space, and hopefully get the attention of you know, journalists um, at some point that also need a lot of this information as they're telling the story about blockchain and what is possible. Okay, excellent. Yeah, it's kind of like we're all on we're all on our own islands. No, there's like the tech people on their island of blockchain, the 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 regulators on a different island, and like we don't really have a, a solid way of um, connecting all of these pieces together at the moment. So as yeah. I say, it will be it will be interesting to see. Do you have a, a vision of what some kind of I mean it's a very broad question with a, probably a very long answer, but do you have 
any wisdom or insight as to some form of regulation that you feel might come into place or should come into place or shall we skip that one (laughs) oh I mean I'll just give a very short answer I think that when it comes to regulation and this we're already seeing there's a lot of really great organizations out there that are doing the work right the crypto council for innovation that i mentioned earlier is doing a lot of that work um, on the hill but i think that you know making sure that the gap between um policy enforcers and regulators and the blockchain and web3 industry isn't ever expanding right we mm-hmm. want it to coalesce And in order for blockchain, or rather, in order for regulation to be responsible, to be uh, conducive to the innovation's maturity, there needs to be collaboration between these two stakeholder groups. And of course, we hear that a lot already, but I think it's really important that education is base camp one, and that's something that we're doing at the center. Also, listening, you know, there's a lot of, you know, huge announcements and, you know, regulators should do this and lawmakers should think of that and the SEC should um, think of this. And there's a lot of you should do this and you should do that. But there needs to be a lot more sitting at the table and listening to what are the concerns? What are the priorities? What does this mean for the industry? What does this mean for people and communities in Mm -hmm. these different um, constituency bases that a lot of obviously lawmakers are concerned about and what does good look like and what does a blockchain-based future look like? So I'm sure a lot of those questions are already being addressed, but um, just to tie the knot, education is at the root of (laughs) regulation into the future. And if we want it to be accessible and inclusive, um, to everybody, then the industry really needs to do the work to be able to work with regulators in a really productive way. Yeah, and um, maybe in my naivety, but I often wonder, like, how can something be truly decentralized if it still has to be, can can regulation also be decentralized? Uh, it's, it, I don't know, it's opening up the, the can of worms, isn't it? But mm, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it's the can of words then the rabbit hole that people talk about, right? Yeah. I mean, there are so many interesting, uh, you know, pillars of philosophy that I think is very compelling about, you know, blockchain and mm-hmm. decentralization, uh, you know, uh, autonomy in terms of financial freedom and whatnot, economic autonomy, all of that are such great um, foundational pillars of the technology. And why people find this interesting and why you see a lot of people in Web3 who come from a lot of these traditional legacy systems, they believe in those values that should really be rooted in our current political, economic, and social systems, right? You you know, you want to see, um, you know, open access and prosperity for all. You want to see decentralization in terms of how people can navigate their own economic uh, independence. You want mm-hmm. to see, um, you want to see, uh, you know, diversity and in, in terms of thought and expression, all of that. And unfortunately, given a lot of the geopolitical factors and 
uh, political uh, elements of upheaval that have really sort of emerged over these past few months, <laughs> it really is, it really kind of takes you back as to, okay, these are the reasons why I'm in Web3. How can I go back to those values? And how do I make sure that when I'm onboarding people onto these applications, when I'm talking to my friends and family about what blockchain is, when I'm talking to, you know, policy enforcers about what is possible, always going back to those values that everybody cares about and that really put people at the forefront of why this is important in the long term. I think that's a really nice uh, point to end it on because, uh, well, obviously, as you know, I agree with uh, your line of thinking and it's, it is, it has to be people-centered, no? because it's... It, that's what it is. I think it just has to be people-centered, human-centered, and uh, you know, it's something that can benefit the, the maximum number of people um, yeah, at any one absolutely. time. I think that if I can add that, you know, um, I said people-centered and you know, human centricity is you know a design thinking concept that a lot of people push forward and how they're talking about the work that they do and the products that they curate, which of course is uh -huh. amazing. But I also want to say that not losing sight of our planetary ecosystem as well. So kind of thinking mm -hmm. about how we can push forward ecosystem centricity to include all living beings, right? Because mm -hmm. that's another element of our work at the center, which is really thinking about how we can how we can push forward education and blockchain law in a way that also tackles some of the climate concerns that we have as a generation and how we can really activate um, service in that direction that includes some of the, you know, the elements that we were talking about and some of the philosophies that we care about when it comes to what blockchain is and what's possible there. Absolutely. I don't know if it was a chain chat or one of the Twitter spaces we did with uh, uh, somebody. I'll try and find. I'll try and find it, and I'll add it into the, the transcript of this, and, and I'll let you know as well. But there was there was a company. I think it was a uh, It was based in Canada, and it was um, kind of blockchain tracking carbon credits, but on a on a small scale as well. You know, so like you know, you, for the average person in the house, okay, recycle, but. Mm, or for a big company, you know, you get the, like the carbon credits on British Airways, for example, and things like that. But there has to be incentive. Well, there shouldn't have to be incentives. The incentives are inherent. But, you know, like these smaller, small scale things that all add up to to a, making a big difference on the whole climate thing. I mean, see if I can remember if it was if it was a if it was a chain chat, I'll send you the link. I think you'll uh, you'll enjoy that aspect. too. um. But yeah, cool. Uh, right. Do you have a question that you can leave for our next guest? Um, yes, I think that. So I think what would be interesting is, you know, what is your favorite Web3 use case? Like the okay. one you tell your friends about when they ask you what Web3 is actually good for? What is the story? What is the actual, you know, the good uh, project or person or group or whatever that's actually doing something really amazing that you use to demonstrate um, how cool this industry is. Yeah, to try and sell it to friends and family. Which one? Which one do you use? 
What's your? Um, so um, I actually use um, I actually use a few, but there's this one project called uh, um, Reseed that we actually worked with them in the um, world economic at the World Economic Forum. There was this huge project that I created around crypto sustainability, and they worked with me. Um, to actually draft a issue briefing on the voluntary carbon market. If you want to check that out, I okay. highly recommend it. But they're doing really great work around bringing carbon credits directly from farmers to the market. And that's how they're essentially trying to fight climate change at scale by essentially financing and incentivizing farmers to steward carbon through regenerative farming practices. And they have a really amazing statistics they have plugs into some of the people and communities that they work with from Latin to Sub-Saharan Africa. And it's really great to when I'm like sitting at the table with my friends or family to kind of, you know, go to some of the audio files and, um, you know, testimonies from these people that they actually source and to be able to be like, hey, you know, this isn't something that's all up in the air that nobody understands or cares about. This is something that's actually you know, putting money in people's pockets and doing so in a way where um, they're actually not being forgotten in the carbon life cycle, which is unfortunately the case in the legacy carbon market. So that's a really great project that I find um, super compelling. Reseed, I will definitely check it out. Um, I mean, thank you so much for this conversation. It has been super interesting. Uh, I have a lot of stuff that I want to be looking up now, so put, put it that way. Um, and yeah, uh, I will let you know when we are ready to publish. Absolutely. And thank you so much for having me. This was such a fun conversation to start the day with. <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Aline.